0: page 93 i think i left off at point two does that sound right to everyone we were getting ready to answer uh, the second question in jesus's all of it discourse so we were in matthew chapter 24 verse 36 about uh right in the middle of page 93 in the notes that sounds right we will It's good to see everybody back after a break. Everybody enjoy their spring break? It's not quite the same, right? It's just not really a spring break, but we had a break. So let me go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, I'm grateful to be here tonight. I'm thankful for the health and safety uh, that you provided to all of us to be here. I'm thankful for this church, uh, this place where we can gather to be encouraged uh, to study your word. I'm thankful for uh, your prophet Matthew, what your spirit led him to write about our Lord Jesus. I pray that as we study his words tonight, that we would uh, think carefully about them, uh, that we'd be humble and submissive, and that your spirit would use these words uh, to make us more like our Lord Jesus. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so we are in the second of two lessons on... The final discourse in Matthew's gospel. So, this is number five of the five major discourses. Uh, This is the one that he gives on the Mount of Olives. It all was prompted back at the beginning of chapter 24 when his disciples asked him two questions. Uh, The first question was a when question. Uh, When was Christ going to return and set up his kingdom? When would this temple be replaced? That Jesus had just referred to. It was all all about a win question, a timing question. The other question they asked was a what question. What will be the signs? What kind of things can we see that would tell us that your arrival had taken place or that the kingdom was near? And we suggested last time that Jesus answers those in reverse order. You can see that by the content of what he says. He takes the when question, the one about the signs, and that's what he answers uh, beginning in chapter 24, going all the way up to verse 35. And then at verse 36, there's a shift. If you're following along in your Bibles, he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So it's pretty clear that that's an answer to the when question. Uh, he has this break in his, his discourse, and basically his answer is, I don't know. Uh, that's a great mystery to us, at least it is to me, how that works with our Lord. He's both human and he's divine. At Sometimes, uh, because he's divine, he's able to use his divine attributes And he knows things. He knows what's in people's hearts. He seems to know what people are thinking. At other times, it seems, at least this is the way that I try to explain it in my own mind, he doesn't use those divine attributes, but he interacts with the world using only his human attributes. So, for example, when the woman in the crowd reached out to touch him in order to be healed, he turns around and says, who touched me? And I don't think he's... Being disingenuous, I think he truly does not know who it was. And here, he says, nobody knows the hour. I don't know it myself. The angels in heaven don't know it. Only the Father knows it. Which means we should be very cautious and humble about predicting when he's returning, right? So if a TV personality or some well-known Bible teacher tells you they've got it figured out when Christ is going to return... They're claiming to know something that even our Lord himself said he didn't know, which probably means that they're wrong, right? Jesus himself said that only he knows. And since it's going to come unexpectedly, we have to be always ready for it. So just to review a little bit from last time, we saw first his answer to the sign question in verses 24, verses 4, or chapter 24, verses 4 through 35. Then we saw him switch to the win question. And then now if we zoom in on that second part, the win question, his answer is that only the Father knows, and he illustrates this with two analogies. So that the day of the Lord, remember the day of the Lord is his campaign to take back this world that rightly belongs to him. It won't be a 24-hour day, but it'll be a long campaign. It will take place over many years, but he'll wage war, and at the same time, he'll extend mercy to people. There'll be both judgments and mercy. But that whole day, that whole complex of events, will arrive without any prior notice. And the first way he illustrates that is with the flood in the days of Noah. Most people in this world, uh, the flood caught them completely unaware. Just They had never seen rain before and then one day it rained, and there was no possibility of their rescue. They were, they were caught in it. They were trapped. He says, As it was in the days of Noah, this is verse 37, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So those aren't necessarily wrong things that they were doing. So we're not supposed to think of like them carousing or partying. He's just using everyday examples. They were having meals. They were planning weddings for their children. They were just going about everyday life. And then one day without warning, the flood came. That's how it will also be when the Son of Man returns in the day of the Lord. His other example here is of a thief, all right? He says, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known, this is verse 43, at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's the thing about thieves, right? They never text you and tell you that they're on their way. You know, I'll be there in five minutes. They never give you any prior warning. So if you want to catch a thief, you have to be always awake. You'd have to stay up and watch for him. You'd have to stay alert, all right, because he's going to come suddenly. So that's Jesus's point, that we as his followers need to be alert and awake because this day of the Lord, this coming, will... Uh, Show up with any, out, any prior warning. And we're going to talk just in a moment here about what that would actually look like. I just wanted to briefly talk a little bit about the verses that we kind of skipped over in between. So when he talks about the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says this in verses 40 and 41. He says, Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken. And the other left so the debate in these verses is well which is the positive one which is the one that we want to be do we want to be the person that's taken as believers or do we want to be the one that's left I think if you look at all of church history the most common view is that the believers are the ones who are taken they're taken to be with Christ they're protected from judgment It's actually been recently in church history that people have argued the opposite. That actually it's the unbeliever who's taken. He's taken in judgment. And actually many dispensationalists or even many premillennialists will argue that way. That this taken is after Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. He's going to take unbelievers and he's going to consign them to judgment And it's going to be the believers who are left behind. And so the argument is that, well, this isn't really uh, an instance where Jesus is talking about a pre-tribulational rapture. So for those of us who debate that, you know, that's an intramural debate among Christians. Good people are on both sides of the fence. There's going to be a tribulation period. Are believers taken to be with the Lord before it? Are they taken to be with the Lord after? That's the debate. And I think this passage actually does address that. Yes?
1: the saved or the elect would be taken Mm -hmm. Um, but could this also refer to after the um, tribulation and then there's some saved people along with unsaved when Jesus returns
0: right and so then they get left and being left would be a good thing right that's that's the debate that's the question which one are we talking about In the textbook, yeah, if you've been reading along in Toussaint's commentary, he, he argues for the opposite of what I'm arguing for. So he argues that this is a reference to after the tribulation. Jesus has returned to the Mount of Olives. He's establishing his kingdom. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, it says he'll, t- he'll send out his angels, and he'll separate out from his kingdom the unbelievers. And so Toussaint's argument is that's what Jesus is talking about here. But I think actually a good argument can be made. It's not, it's not decisive. I'm not going to die on this hill, but I'm just going to give you the arguments. I think there's good arguments to be made that Jesus is here referring to the rapture of his people, his gathering to himself those who are believers. I think one reason why this is appealing to me is because I think many of us have wondered, well, if there is going to be a rapture of the church that takes place before the tribulation, then why doesn't Jesus talk about it? Why doesn't Jesus himself ever refer to it? And so this would be my answer to that. I think there's a possibility, a strong possibility, that he actually does refer to it in this passage. So, number one, at the bottom of the page, verses 4 through 31 have described signs that will or will not indicate that Jesus has arrived and the end of the age has arrived. However, the events described in verses 36 through 42 arrive without warning, without any prior signs. To put it another way, in verses 32 through 33, certain signs will lead to knowing that the king and his kingdom are near. However, in verses 36 through 44, the emphasis is on not knowing when the kingdom will come. All right, so I know this is hard because it's been two weeks since we looked at the first chapter, so those verses, they, at this point, they might just be going over our head, and it's hard to th- put it all together. But basically, two weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 24, it was all about signs, things that we would see. And Jesus is saying, hey, you'll see these things happening, and when you see these things happening, you'll know that I am right there at the door, that I am near. On the other side, these things that he's talking about tonight in this passage— happens suddenly without any prior warning. So it seems like Jesus is talking about two different things. Number two, I think it's likely significant that Jesus switches to the singular day in verse 36. So you notice in verse 36, it's about that day or hour. I think earlier it was significant that he kept referring to plural days, verses 19, 20, and 29, But I think from this time forward, he speaks of the singular day. It's the day of the Lord. So like Jesus, Paul also uses thief imagery to describe the unexpected arrival of that day. So let's just look at some of these passages, because we'll refer to them. But when Jesus talks about the day of the Lord, or that day arriving like a thief, other New Testament writers pick up on it. And I think they're basing their teaching off of Jesus. So for example, this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. He says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, you might ask, well, how did they know that very well? I think there's there's two options. One, Paul taught it to them. So in the short period of time that the Apostle Paul was in Thessalonica, he could have taught those new believers this. The other option, and I think the two could go together, is that he got it from Jesus. They knew the teaching of Jesus, and so they knew from the teaching of Jesus that the day of the Lord would come like a thief. And notice again, it's while people are just going about everyday life. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. And then in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then John, recording Jesus' words. So this is Jesus himself speaking in the revelation that he gives to John. He says to one of the churches, But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And then Revelation 16, 15, he says, Look, I come like a thief, blessed. What's that sound like? It's been a while since we were in Matthew chapter 5, right? But This is one of those blessed statements. The people who are blessed are the ones who stay awake and they remain clothed, all right? So again, that's the, the imagery of like, you know, you don't even go put your PJs on. You actually stay dressed and ready so that when the intruder comes into your house, you're ready to take action. That's the sense of urgency that Jesus is saying that we should have. And actually, it's only the blessed people who have it, all right? So it'd actually be a sign of being an unbeliever or not being a blessed person if you were daisical about the Lord's return and you weren't alert and ready when he came for us, all right? So I think it's significant here that Jesus switches to the day, and I think that it's significant that all these other New Testament writers use the same imagery, Number three there, Jesus' day Days of Noah illustration does not match life within Daniel's 70th week. It seems to better match the complacent life of most people prior to the rapture. So this is from Hart. He says, how can a business-as-usual attitude toward life exist at the precise time when the 21 tribulation judgments of Revelation are being poured out in all their intensity? So I know I'm assuming there's some stuff, right? So if you, if you understand the book of Revelation differently, that's not a very persuasive argument. But if you actually do believe that at some point in the future, there'll be an extended period of time where God will act in judgment towards this world, and it's the after that time that his son returns to the Mount of Olives, well, then that whole period of time, that doesn't really match the days of Noah then. How could people just be going about everyday life and talking about peace and safety if they're actually living during the judgments described in the book of Revelation? Number four, Paul's statement there, as I said in in 1 Thessalonians, it could have been based on actual teaching from Jesus. Number five, most tribulational scholars our pre-tribulational scholars, I say, should say, understand taken in verses 40 to 41 to reference a taking in judgment rather than a taking in the rapture. So this is, this is to uh, the point about two saints, all right? So this would be two saints' argument if you're reading the textbook. So they would argue that those taken are unbelievers, which is the opposite position taken by most post-tribulational scholars. This option by pre-tribulational scholars is often defended by appealing to the parallel passage in Luke 17. So you can look this up later. If, you're, if this is something that you want to dig deeper into, one of the beauties of our gospel accounts is that we have three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that tell pretty much the same stories from different perspectives. So if we have difficulty understanding one of them, God has given us two others that we can go and compare them to. The interesting thing about Luke is he doesn't take all of the material that's found in all of the discourse and put it in one place. He puts it in three different locations in his gospel, probably because Jesus taught this type of stuff on more than one occasion. And on the parallel passage that would match up with this statement here, it seems like Jesus is saying those who are taken are taken to be with the, the vultures. Because the disciples, after he makes this statement about being taken, will say, Where, Lord? And then Jesus says something to the effect of, Where the body is, there the birds, the eagles, or the vultures will gather also. So that's usually the argument. The argument would be that Luke 17 fills in the details for us and tells us that we don't want to be one of the taken ones. Because, after all, being going to where the vultures are doesn't sound like a good thing. It sounds like judgment. All right, so I say there in response, however, the question and answer in Luke 17, it could be referring to, one, the location of Jesus appearing. So he might not be referring to where they're taken. He might be referring to where they'll find him, where they'll find him. Or two, I think a good argument could even be made there that Luke is referring to believers being drawn to him as eagles or vultures are drawn towards a body. And I'll let you dig deeper there. If if you have any questions about it, we can can tackle it next time. Argument number six, there's no precedent in the Old Testament or if any of the Jewish literature that was written between the two testaments for Jesus' thief metaphor. So lots of the things that Jesus says, we know they were common expressions from that day. We can either find them in the Old Testament, or we can find them in other things that Jewish people wrote. Just like today, if a preacher got up and preached, he'd use some illustrations and figures of speech that are common in the culture. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is doing when he starts comparing himself to a thief. He seems to have coined that. He seems to have made it up himself. So when all of these other New Testament writers use the same metaphor, I think it's a more convincing argument that they're also receiving it from Jesus. And they're all referring to the same thing, an eminent return. So I say there, flipping the page to page 95, since many pre-tribulational scholars rightly argue that these other New Testament passages teach an eminent return of Christ for the church, it seems that Jesus' words and the all of it discourse should be understood similarly, all right? How could I say that a little clearer? Sometimes when I read my own notes, I'm like, that wasn't very clear. I could have said that better. Basically, what I'm arguing is that if you ask to Saint or any other pre-tribulational scholar who thinks that when Jesus refers to being taken, he's referring to believers being taken, if you ask them, well, what do you think about these verses up here? they would say that all of those verses are a reference to the rapture. They're references to Jesus coming unexpectedly and taking believers. Well, my response then is, well, then, if that's what all of these men were saying when they talked about the thief, and if they've got their thief metaphor from Jesus, then doesn't it make sense, wouldn't it follow, that Jesus is talking about the same thing? That's the argument, okay? I think all four of them, Jesus on the Mount of Olives... Peter later, the Apostle Paul later, and then the Apostle John recording Jesus, they're all with one voice speaking of the same thing, this imminent start of the day of the Lord. And the first thing that will take place on the day of the Lord is that Jesus will graciously gather his people to himself. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Number seven, Jesus' command to keep watch suggests an imminent return of Christ is described in this section. Again, I think this whole idea of keeping watch and being alert that keeps being referred to in the New Testament only makes sense if he's referring to the rapture of the church, all right? So that was a lot, just on two verses, all right? We'll pick up the pace after that, but I'll stop for a second, I'll drink coffee, and I'll take questions if anyone has a quick question about that.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I'm not as familiar with the mid the mid trib arguments just because there aren't that many of those scholars. There are there are scholars who argue that I'm just not as familiar. So I'm guessing they wouldn't use this though. I'm guessing that they also would say that this taken is taken in judgment. So a major shift took place. You know, um, I'm just guessing here, but it seems like uh, probably 50, 60 years ago, when in conservative evangelical circles, the whole debate over the rapture became a hot topic. It was at that point that people kind of flipped their position. So up until that point, I think the historic Christian position had always been that you want to be the one of those taken people. That's taken in the rapture. But then the problem was, well, but in the flow of the story here, it seems like we're at the end of the the tribulation, so it must be after the tribulation that you're taking. Well, then that forced the pre-tribulational scholars to rethink their arguments, and they're like, well, he wasn't talking about the rapture after all, he was talking about something different. But I think the mistake is, going back to the structure, remember that chart we put up a couple weeks ago where we looked at how the two questions are answered, And when he was answering the the one question, he goes in pretty much chronological order. But now he's set aside, he's finished that question, and he's gone to a different question. It's a timing question. And so since he's switched to a different topic, there is no more chronological order. And so there's no need to say that this taken or this coming here takes place after the tribulation. Yes?
1: Quick question, actually, uh, and uh, so much about the text uh, itself, but uh, back on page ninety-three, uh, mm-hmm. when we had, you know, said uh, Jesus was saying, "I don't know," uh, is would that be related uh, to Philippians chapter two of the kenosis of the empty? In other words, in other words, that that sometimes that voluntary, mm-hmm. not not misuse, non-use of of attributes of deity. In,
0: in yeah community. that that's how some people have answered it i i don't take it that way so i take paul uses a figure of speech there he says that jesus made himself nothing actually the old king james that some of us memorized when we were little like in a wand or something actually probably was pretty close because i think it was like made himself of no reputation does that sound right yeah so he what it basically paul's saying is he made himself a nobody He was somebody, he was very God, but he made himself like he was a nobody. And then the very next line explains how he did that, by taking the form of a human, by becoming a servant, by humbling himself all the way to the point of the cross. And so, I don't think that's actually an instance where Paul's talking about giving up attributes. It's not a giving up of anything, it's an adding. So... Jesus actually lowered himself by adding something. By adding humanity, he became a nobody. I don't think he ever gave up anything about his deity. I don't think God can give up stuff. He can't cease to be God or cease to have the attributes. It's just that for whatever reason, in his incarnate state, when he has two natures, he seems to interact or answer or speak From one or the other for lack of a better way of describing it and it's a it's a great mystery how that occurs but I don't want to I don't want to say about him that he stopped being divine or that he gave up divine attributes I'm not even real comfortable saying he temporarily gave it up because I just think that even though that's been a common way that it's been described I think it's a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2 do not some say exercise yeah the vol yeah so so it would commonly be say he temporarily and voluntarily gave up the free exercise of his divine attributes and and yeah good people have argued that i'm just not comfortable with that type of language i think it's it <sighs> misunderstands what paul's saying there yeah but it's a i admit it's a good attempt to explain what's really hard to understand in this verse yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. How would um going back to the prior
1: the verses uh forty to forty-one, mm-hmm. how would you how would those tend to be understood in amillennial and
0: plus millennial systems? Yeah, so in an omillenal system, you know, the, the beauty of that system it's just very simple and neat, right? That's why it's attractive. So it's just, you know, this age continues. And then at some point, Jesus will suddenly appear. He'll reveal himself. And at that point, he will separate the sheep and the goats, the believers and unbelievers. So I'm guessing some of those men would or women would just not even really try to parse out which is taken and which is left because for them, it just doesn't really matter who's who. The whole idea is just that we're separated. I'm guessing, though, because of Matthew 13, that most of them would probably lean towards the taken being taken in judgment um, recently, like in recent discussions. But again, I don't I think you can make a strong argument that that's not how the church has historically understood the passage. Nope. All right, so now we got to get to the parables, right? So we're all set with Jesus' instruction here that we're supposed to be alert. We're supposed to be awake. To use what he says in Revelation 3, we're supposed to stay dressed. We understand that these are all figures of speech, right? That doesn't mean that if you put on your jammies tonight and go to bed that you've somehow sinned, right? That's not Jesus' point in this passage. all right? He's talking about something important. It's so important that you'll see in some of these passages to not do it is actually a sign of not being one of his children. It's actually something that will bring about severe punishment. So if it's that serious of a thing, then we should try to understand what Jesus is actually referring to. And he actually helps us by giving these three parables. So starting in verses 45 and then actually extending through the next chapter, uh, the first one is this parable here about a servant waiting for his master. So I give these to you as three points, starting in the middle of page 95. So the underlined point there, I'm actually basing that pretty closely to some sermons that D.A. Carson gave. I've appreciated these sermons. These are some of those sermons that I've gone back to and listened multiple times, and so I gave you the link there. The paragraph that follows, that's my explanation. So if there's mistakes there, I take the blame for the mistakes. But for those main points, I'm giving credit to, uh, to Carson there. So number one, I think the parable of the servant, the first one teaches that we should be ready for Jesus to come back any time. So remember the the wicked servant in the story who gets named that way in verse 47. He wrongly assumes that his master being gone a long time means he can do whatever he pleases as if the master will never return to hold him accountable. All right, so the, the idea is, you know, that the master's gone on a long trip. Remember, we looked last time at how long time is a key word in this passage. It keeps showing up. Jesus is getting his disciples ready for a long time. But sometimes when you waited a long time, you start thinking, well, I'll never be held accountable. Okay, So I know when I was a child and I would regularly, at the end of the day, shove all of my stuff my brother and I shared a room. we just shove everything into the closet. You know, my mom would say, the, the room has to be picked up before you go to bed. So we would pick up the room. It would look nice, but it would all just be shoved into the closet. But my mom was on to us, right? She knew exactly what we were doing. So about once a month or so, she'd say, okay, today on this Saturday, you're cleaning the closet. Everything comes out of the closet, and you're going to put it back neatly. And I'm going to come back and check on you. Well, she'd come back and check on us, and the two of us were just we're just playing, right? I mean, we had all of our stuff out of the closet. So we were just, we're just dinking around, and Wasting time because it, time had gone by and we weren't thinking about any kind of accountability. So finally she'd set a kitchen timer for us. And when the timer would ding, there was going to be consequences. My father was going to show up and just in case you don't believe in the same discipline, I'll just leave it vague, but there was going to be consequences. All right? My dad was going to do something bad to the two of us. Right? So when we would hear that ticking down and we knew it was closer... Then we would kick it into gear. Like, then the closet really got done, right? But you see, Jesus' point in this parable is you don't know when the timer's gonna go off. You don't know when that buzzer's gonna ring. So, the, the tendency for us is like we, we've been waiting for Jesus for 2,000 years, right? It's been 2,000 years. It doesn't seem sometimes to us like he's ever gonna come. We just ex- assume that each day will be like the one before and Jesus is warning us ahead of time. No, that's that's a mistake. That's actually a sign of unbelief. I am going to return and I'm going to return suddenly for you without any warning. And so you have to be busy. Be busy doing what uh, I expect of you, all right? So I think that's the first the first lesson. And notice this this wicked servant, he's actually consigned to the place of the hypocrites. So after we read chapter 23, you know, a few times ago, We know you don't want to be called a hypocrite in Matthew's gospel, right? That's how he described the Pharisees. So you would be in the same category as the Pharisees if you were the one who forgot that a long delay does not rule out a sudden judgment. So number two there, we should also be prepared for Jesus to be gone a long time, all right? So this is a little different, all right? So in the first one, we have to be prepared that Jesus could come back anytime. In the second one, we have to be prepared for him to be gone a long time. You could make the opposite mistake, right? You could live with such a sense of urgency that Jesus could come back today that you are neglectful of long-term planning, of investing in children and grandchildren of thinking about where your church will be in 20 years, or 50 years, or 100 years, all right? That's a that's a different lesson. So we have to be pre- prepared for Jesus to come back anytime, but we also have to be prepared for him to be gone for a long time. And he illustrates this with these, these ten virgins. So these would have been young men, women participating in the festivities surrounding the wedding of a friend or family member, similar to bridesmaids today. So that's why... One of the earlier versions of the NIV translated actually as bridesmaids. All right, so they're they're part of the wedding party, but I think the main point is they're not in charge of the wedding. So they're there, they're participating, but they don't actually get to decide when things happen. At some point in the festivities, there's the groom is going to come to where they are, and then they're going to enter into a banquet and. We know that these wedding ceremonies would take place over long periods of time with lots of feasting. Some people have tried to figure out which specific piece of the wedding Jesus is referring to, and I just don't think we can do that. We don't know enough about their wedding customs, the ones that we do know about. We're not sure if they actually go back to the time of Jesus, and Matthew's not real specific. But we can kind of put this into our context, right? We've all been at a wedding And maybe you went to the ceremony, you saw them get married, then you went somewhere else and there's going to be a meal, right? But in between, you're left waiting because maybe they're taking pictures or they're doing other things. And you have no control over that, right? Because the day is not about you. (laughs) It's not your wedding. You're just there. So we all just sit there patiently waiting and we're glad if there's munchies or something, right? To keep us occupied. But at some point, the wedding party will show up, right? And then the ball will keep rolling. Well, in this story that Jesus is telling, there was 10 of these women, and they were waiting, but five of them weren't prepared for a long enough wait. They didn't have enough oil to make it through the night. They're not allowed to share other people's oils, so you can't be dependent on other people's preparedness. You have to be prepared yourself. So in summary there at the bottom, I say, these bridesmaids forget that they must be prepared for a long wait before the arrival. I think there's lots of applications there to just the way we approach the Christian life, right? There should be a sense of urgency. We should be busy about doing things, but some of those things that we should be urgent and busy about are long term planning, right? Thinking about the consequences of our action, laying seeds today in our children and in our churches that could last another 2,000 years if Jesus decides that it's going to be, or actually we know it's the Father who decides, if the Father decides that it's going to be 2,000 years before he can come. So, you know, we don't short-circuit Christian training. Um, We don't, you know, make irresponsible financial decisions. Uh, we, When we make decisions about our churches, we think about the lasting repercussions of those. I mean, there's just all kinds of different ways, I think, we as Christians can apply what Jesus says there to us. And then the last point, to use Carson's terms, we should be busy in the meantime. All right, He just has a way with words, so I couldn't help but just use his. So being watchful and waiting for Jesus' return means being busy doing what he's asked us to do. So what does it look like to be awake and alert and dressed? I think in a nutshell, it just means doing the things that our master has told us to do, the specific things that he's asked of us. In the story, a master going on a long journey gives his three servants a very large quantity of money. So if you're interested in what those terms mean, I give you the numbers down there in a footnote. But basically, in our days, they've got got thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of money. So with that kind of money, the master's expecting them to put it to use. Okay, If you're that wealthy, and you've given this to your servants to take care of, you're thinking of investments. You're thinking of making a profit over this period of time. But it's the wicked and lazy servant, in verse 21, who does nothing. He keeps it safe. He hides it. But that's not what his master wanted, right? That's the point. He didn't do what his master expected of it. So rather than being allowed to share in his master's happiness, this servant is thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think this punishment is parallel to the fate of the wicked servant and the foolish virgins and is nothing less than exclusion from Jesus' coming kingdom. So let's look at these three up here on the screen in parallel fashion. So the first wicked servant, it seems like all three of these parables definitely do highlight the wrong response. He will be cut into pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites. I'm guessing that when Jesus' original readers heard that, they knew that was the detail of the parable that didn't match everyday life. Jesus seems to do that in his parables. He'll tell a story, and they'll be nodding along because they're like, yeah, this is a pretty familiar thing. This is like an everyday occurrence. But sometimes he'll throw in little details that catch them off guard. (laughs) Like, wait a minute, that's not what usually happens, right? I don't think servants were usually cut into pieces, okay, by their Jewish masters or anybody in that time period. It just seems a little excessive, right? It seems to grab your attention. But I think Jesus does that deliberately because he's driving home the severe repercussions of not being one of his faithful servants. They're assigned a place with the hypocrites. They go to a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, last semester we saw that same expression back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Remember, after he healed the centurion's servant, he said they'll actually be Gentiles who will come from all, comp- all the points of the compass, and they'll be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the millennial feast, in the new kingdom, the new heaven and earth. But there will be people who thought they belonged to the kingdom, sons of the kingdom, he calls them, who will be excluded. And they'll be going to a place where they'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So he returns now at the end of his gospel, and he uses that same imagery. Which I think is parallel then to the five foolish virgins who weren't prepared. The door was shut in their face. They were not allowed to go in. And then he says, the groom, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Which again, that seems like a detail that would have been like, oh, that doesn't fit, right? Like who has 10 virgins or bridesmaids? Who has people in their wedding party that they actually don't know, right? You don't usually go to the wedding and then realize, hey, so-and-so up there in the dress, I, I have no idea who that is, right? So Jesus's point here, I think just like it was in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these are people who think they have a connection to Jesus. They'll say, I've been doing all kinds of stuff. They'll even be able to point to miracles that they performed, like casting out demons. But the point is, they actually didn't do what they were asked to do. They came up with their own system of what it looked like to follow Jesus, but they actually, like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, they didn't actually listen to Jesus' words and build their life on him. So Jesus will say at the final judgment, I did not know you. And then the third one, and you can clearly see how it's parallel to the first one, worth, the worthless servant who hides the money, he's thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, occasionally... You'll meet, um, you'll meet folks uh, who are premillennial or dispensational or take a futurist approach to eschatology, and I would unashamedly put myself in that camp, but I would have fellow believers who are in that camp with me who would point to verses like this, and because of some other decisions that they've made in the Bible, would say, well, that's not talking about hell. That's not talking about the lake of fire. They still get into the kingdom, but they just don't get good jobs in the kingdom. You know, while the rest of us are enjoying and ruling with Jesus, they're out there, you know, in road construction or digging ditches. I mean, I I literally have heard people preach that as a child. And I just think that's a misconception of what Jesus is saying. Okay. I think those are very clear metaphors and pictures for an eternal separation from our Father, right? A place that he just a little bit. He's going to refer to as a place of fire that was prepared for the devils, the devil and his angels. All right? So then after showing us what it looks like to keep watch and be ready, I think Jesus finish up, finishes up his Olivet discourse with this picture of the final judgment. I think we have to be careful about verses 31 through 46, this conclusion. It's not a parable. All right. It's not. He doesn't have all the normal features of a parable. It's not an everyday story. It's a picture of the king, and he's separating people. But at the same time, I don't think it's like we're getting a DVR view or a, a picture of what actually takes place. All right. He's talking in general terms about what the judgment will be based on, and how he'll make his decisions. But I don't think he's describing in detail exactly when or when it will take place or what it looks like. all right? So we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we as we go through the last couple pages here. So picking up on page 97, in this conclusion to the sermon, Jesus returns to his coming, which was referred to back in verse 30, and he describes what the judgment will be like and will take in will be like that will take place at that time. So if you look at verse 31, uh, this again, this has to, goes back to his timing question because he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So again, Jesus doesn't know when it'll take place, but whenever it does take place, he knows for sure that it'll happen. To look at it in another way, this conclusion is a more detailed explanation of the punishments referred to at the end of the three preceding parables. And I probably should have had rewards there. If you want to pencil that in, I think it should be punishments and rewards. So if this was a, if this was a Prezi presentation, you know, where you could zoom in on elements of a picture, Jesus in the parables, he's talked about three different outcomes for people. Now he's zooming in on those outcomes and he's actually describing what this will look like. So in the, the account, the way he describes it, He talks about a king, and I think it's pretty clear that the king is him. He's the son of man. He's going to be judging the nations, it says in verse 32. So again, this isn't just the people of Israel. This is the whole world. He's been appointed as God of the judge of all of us. And when he judges, it'll be like a person who's separating sheep from the goats. So again, like... You know, Matthew isn't as a prophet, or Jesus even as a prophet. He's not seeing the future, and in the future will be either sheep or goats. He's using a figure of speech, right? That he will separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Some will be sent to the right, and they're allowed to enter the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 34. So, you know several times in this class you know we've talked about you know is this is this kingdom that Jesus refers to is it just a 1000-year millennium is it or is it forever is it just for the Jewish people or is it for Gentiles and i've said several times even though it has a 1000-year initial period to it based on the book of revelation it was always intended to last forever it was always an eternal kingdom And it was always for everyone. It was always supposed to include the Gentiles. Because here, look, he says to people who are part of the nations that this kingdom that they're getting ready to enter was prepared for you since the creation of the world. There's a lot there that we could talk about, right, theologically. That God, from the very beginning, even before he created the world, had a kingdom that he had prepared, and he had people who he had planned to enter it, right? And now we're finally seeing this picture of them going in. These same people in verse 46, they're called the righteous. And the kingdom is also referred to as eternal life. Just like we saw back in Matthew 19, remember when Jesus was interacting with the the rich man, kingdom and eternal life are used synonymously, both based off of Daniel who talked about people being resurrected and entering into a kingdom that lasts forever. So those are the people that go to the right, but to the left of the king are people who are excluded from the kingdom. In verse 41, he says, depart from me. In verse, he, he goes on to say, they'll go to eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, which is also called eternal judgment. So if we go back to that slide that we looked at earlier with the three punishments in the parables, I think this is... It's the same thing. It's the same punishment now being described with some of the same language. Again, he's going to tell people that they're supposed to depart. They're cursed people, which is the opposite of being blessed people. They're going into eternal fire instead of eternal life. And it was a kingdom that was prepared for his people, remember, from before the foundation of the world. Here they're going into fire that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels, all right? So I think it's, it's the same, same punishment. So then the question, we even had this question a little bit right before the class started, is what judgment is Jesus talking about? When will this actually take place? So I say there in point C, this is a difficult passage, so conclusions must be reached with caution and humility. So that's code for, I I hope that maybe the clock will just go by quickly and I won't have to tell you. I could just skedaddle out of here and not take a side, right? So Turner, in his commentary, he says it's perhaps the most profoundly difficult text in Matthew, which is kind of interesting because I could probably find six different texts that some commentator has said that about. So there's been lots of them. Turner himself, it's a very helpful commentary, He goes on to list three common ways that the sermon's conclusion has been understood. So these are three ways that have been very common in church history, all right, for people to understand it. Number one, some people believe that Jesus is describing the final judgment where everyone will be judged based on their good deeds done for people in general. Some within this position would see a works-based salvation, even one that surprises individuals who do not think of themselves as Christians. So look at verses 37 through 39. So remember, Jesus is going to say to them, Hey, there was a time when I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and so forth, right? So basically, he's saying to these people, You took care of me. You showed kindness to me. And it's on the basis of that that I'm letting you into my kingdom. Well, then look what they say in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did, you see, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? So they're very surprised. They're like, we've never seen you before. <laughs> this is the first time we're seeing you. How could we have ever done any of these things for you, Lord? And so some would argue that these are people who didn't even think of themselves as Christians. These were just good people. They were Buddhists, they were, they were Mormons, they were Hindus, they were, they were followers of Islam. They were just good people who did good things, and at the final judgment, they'll find out to their surprise that on the basis of that, that Jesus will accept them. There's all kinds of passages in Scripture that would contradict that, right? It's a wrong interpretation, but I think even within this account here, we can realize that that's not what Matthew is describing, okay? Number two, others have argued that Jesus is specifically referring to the judgment of the Gentiles following his return to the Mount of Olives, and that the basis of judgment will be the treatment of Jesus' fellow Jewish people during the tribulation period. So again, this this view, they push back against the first one, and they would say, hey, look, you're not looking carefully at the text. Jesus isn't just talking about you doing good to everybody in general— He's talking about specific people. So when they, they act surprised, look how the king replies in verse 40. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the king says to him, I know you've never seen me before. You've, you've never personally interacted with me. But I had the least of these. I had brothers and sisters in this world, and you showed kindness to them. And that kindness that you show to them is evidence that you belong in my kingdom. And so this view would say, hey, these people are specifically the Jewish people. And so what Jesus is referring to is that after the tribulation period, he'll evaluate the nations, the Gentiles, based on how well they treated the Jewish people during the tribulation. And that that does have an—it does ring true at some level, right? Right? If we really think that the tribulation period will be this extended period of multiple years where there will be judgments taking place and the people of Israel will be especially persecuted by a false messiah who tricks them, then it would be only, it seems, believing Gentiles during that period who would show them kindness and help them, right? And so the argument goes that that's what Jesus is specifically referring to. But look at point three here. The majority view among believers has been that Jesus is describing the final judgment of all people and that Jesus is using the believer's treatment of fellow believers as evidence of their salvation. So this view here, they would go to Matthew chapter 12. Remember when Jesus is told, hey, your your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, they want to see you, and Jesus says what? It's actually everyone who does the will of my father is my brother and sister. So I think already in Matthew's gospel, over and over again, we've tried to emphasize this in the class, right? That we are a new community. We are a family. Jesus considers all of us his family. So I don't think he's specifically referring to Jewish people during one specific time. I think he's speaking of all of us in general. We evidence, we demonstrate the fact that we're born again by showing love towards fellow believers, right? So it's not the basis, it's not the key that gets us into the kingdom. The basis will always be the finished work of Jesus. The fact that Jesus Christ died for us. He died for our sins, right? As Paul will say, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me, right? That's our hope. But all of us who were loved by Jesus and who he died for, we've been born again and now we do things, that we never would have done before. And one of those fruits, one of those evidences, is that we love our fellow believers. And if we saw them in need, we would help them. We would give them cups of water. We would clothe them. We would visit them in prisons. We wouldn't be afraid to identify with them, even if they were among the persecuted. All right? So that's the third view. And I actually think that one is the most compelling. So I say there in D... In evaluating these views, it seems apparent that Jesus is referring to the same type of division of people that he described in the Sermon on Mount with the two gates, the two trees, and the two foundations. So remember, this is the fifth and final of the, the five discourses. Matthew deliberately took five blocks of teaching, and he used those as the backbone of his gospel story. And I think they have a parallel structure. The first one and the last one parallel. The second one and the fourth one parallel. And the third one in the middle, the one about the kingdom parables, is his, his main point that he wants to focus on. But I think both the first one and the last one have this division of humanity. They end the same way. Hey, basically, contrary to what many religions of this world teach, not all paths lead to heaven. Not everyone enters into the kingdom. There will be a separation of people. There are two gates. There are two trees. There are two foundations. Or here, there are sheep and there are goats. And one of the ways that the two can be shown to be different is how they treat the true followers of Jesus. Do we actually love our fellow believers? All right, so skipping down to the very end of that paragraph. Therefore, View number three seems most likely, but that does not mean that Jesus' words here could not apply in particular to a judgment like the one described in view two, while also referring to other times. So I do think that based on other places of Scripture, that there will likely be multiple judgments when Jesus returns. I don't see why he couldn't do do it that way. Uh, There could be judgments where he specifically addresses jewish people there could be judgments where he specifically addresses gentile people there could be judgments where he addresses us who lived in this in-between time and who are part of this new community of the church there could be other times where he addresses people who are born after he returns in the tribulation or millennial period i'm not denying all that i just wonder if here he isn't specifically addressing a time He's just speaking in general. When he judges, and whenever he judges, this is what it will look like. It'll be a separation like a shepherd separating his sheep and goats. All right, any final question for, for tonight? Yes.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have to say, it, I, you know, going into this class tonight, I was basically a number two view, and it seemed like amongst all of my study and reading of dispensational premillennialists, uh, you know, and then that list up there, you know, at the top, of page 98. But that's it. But it seems like dispensational premillennialists really, really major on two judgments. There's the Bema for the church age believers and the Great White Throne for the unbelievers. And this, which I thought was. After the Great Tribulation, and just right at the very beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, yeah, uh, and Jesus is ruling, and this this takes place. Then I pictured it, but but there's not a lot of doesn't seem to be a lot of ink spilled on on this particular judgment. A mm. lot on the demon, and a lot on the Great mm-hmm. White Throne, but very little on this. If if in fact. Instead of being an overall, pick kind of a conglomerate type thing, it's it's. I always kind of pictured that as if, if they, in that time
0: frame, beginning yeah. of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, and why why don't people? Well, again, I think it goes back to uh, kind of the same issue that we ran into with the taken and not taken argument. It's if you if you're really set on a chronological order, like if you think everything in the all of it discourse has just been one long story in chronological order then this would seem to be after the tribulation and it would seem to fit with what jesus has said about the jewish people but if we think there's a major break at 24:36, where jesus switches topics then i think you're less likely to see that chronological order and jesus could just be speaking broadly whenever i come back and whenever i judge even if that's multiple times this is what it'll look like I will separate people, and I'll use as evidence, exhibit A, exhibit A in my trial will be, how did you love my family? How did you treat my brothers and sisters? Which fits into the theme we have saw all through the book of Matthew about this this emphasis on Jesus' true family, who actually belongs to Jesus' true family.
1: So chronological order versus, versus what? the general? Yeah, I
0: think at verse... 36 of chapter 24 the chronology drops off and he's just answering this one question about what is when will this take place we'll try to tackle that a little bit more next week but we're out of time so thank you for being here and uh lord willing i'll see you in a week